You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 83. And on this special four-year anniversary episode, I'll be talking to Rob Jones. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can take through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com. But the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. All right, so today's guest is artist and creative director Rob Jones. Rob is probably most well-known for the decades of work that he's done for Jack White and Jack's various projects. From posters to packaging design, even organizing the other artists that do posters for Jack's show. Dude even won a Grammy at one point. And on the completely other side of his career, Rob's long acted as creative director for a couple pretty well-known companies. For almost 20 years, he worked as creative director for Mondo, uh, once the movie poster arm of Alamo Drafthouse and recently stepped into the executive creative director role at Vinyl Me Please. We talk about all this and more on this special four-year anniversary episode. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rob Jones. Rob, welcome to the show, man. It's so good to have you on. I'm excited we could do this. Thank you very much for having me. It is a true honor. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to all the uh, Art Affairs interviews. They were, I mean, just a compliment. You did really good stuff. Awesome. No, and this is the four-year anniversary, too, so i like truly uh, honored to have you on. Um, so listeners of the show probably, uh, and if you listen, you might know this, I do a lot of research on the guests that I have on. Um, and the one place that I always start is with the artist's own bio <laughs> on their website, which, oh my God, if um, if nobody's read yours, it's an adventure. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I was so confused like when I started reading it. And uh, right from the start, I kind of came to the conclusion that you probably just like made it all up, which that in and of itself was uh, was going to be super impressive. But then I found out a little bit later that it was actually Lenny Bruce's bio and you've just like swapped your name in. <laughs> so. Yeah, I didn't really have that great of a life. So I figured his, he's got a very interesting life. So uh, just <laughs> use that. So if people want to read a bio, then if that's really what they want to read, then here you go. Here's a great one. Yeah, it definitely threw me off for a little bit. I was like, he's 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, I've had some people get confused by it, too. They seriously think all their work was made by a dead 100-year-old man <laughs> from Long Island. So, uh, But no, I'm, I'm quite breathing, unlike poor Lenny, unfortunately. So where did you grow up? I mean, I, I think you kind of spent some time in a couple different places, Georgia, Waco, stuff like that. Did you move around a lot? Yeah, I was uh, born in Albany, Georgia. And before I was a year old, uh, we shipped off to Waco. 
my dad got a job at the Eminem Mars. Nope, take it back. Uh, he at Albany, he was working at uh, Procter and Gamble, and then uh, he uh, started working for Eminem uh, Mars and got shifted over to the Waco plant, and that's where I grew up until sixth grade, and then uh, we moved to uh, Cleveland, Tennessee. No, no offense, but I gotta say, uh, there's if you don't like Cleveland, Ohio, there's the worst Cleveland out there. I gotta tell you, <laughs> watch out. But uh, it's not. I mean, it's it it nice enough. And we uh, moved back to uh, Albany, Georgia, and that's where I spent the rest of my uh, adolescence. So, when you think of like your childhood, like what place do you remember the most? Uh, you know, what left the greatest impression on you? I've thought about it's funny you ask that. Like I've thought about that. Do I consider my what Grand Falloon do I consider myself associated with Georgia or Texas? Because I've been in Texas. I've lived in Texas more than anywhere else in my entire life. Like right now, shoot, at least 24 years with, uh, with Jenny. So before that, and uh, you know, another 10, 12 uh, when I was a kid. But I don't know. I think Georgia. That's when I was, you know, figuring out things. Uh, you know, my friends and I were just trying to figure out what our identities were. So they probably had the biggest influence. And you mentioned your dad's work. Did did your mom do anything creative, or did any of your family do anything creative? My dad, my dad can paint. My dad, okay, he's about like me. He can pretty much do anything he wants. It he could do and probably do it perfectly. I don't know me to toot my own horror, but I mean, if I put my mind to it, I, I can. I figure I can do about, about anything decently well. Art was the one that the thing I was like, ooh, I'm really good at this. I should stick with this. Uh, but uh, my dad, uh, he's an engineer, but. Uh, he always had like an artistic side. If, he, if I asked him to draw me something when I was a kid, he could draw like a likeness. He could draw a face pretty quickly. He drew uh, Alec Guinness for me one time. <laughs> and were, I mean, were they supportive of your interest in art? Oh, God, no. <laughs> he was an engineer. Yeah. So uh, he was an engineer. My mom grew up in uh, Kentucky. I actually, uh, both sides of my family uh, come from Kentucky, but uh, my granddad moved to Florida uh, looking for work back in the day. But, uh, yeah, my mom was like, I, we, I've been poor. Don't be an artist. It's not sexy, seriously. And my dad was like, uh, yeah, what she said, this is a, this is a bad idea, Jeans. You need to uh, go to school, study something that they want to pay you for, and then uh, do that. They won't want your brain, not your artwork. Jeez. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me see your artwork again. I'm like, here you go. He's like, uh-huh. A rat with, what are these? Wolverine claws. Yeah, yeah, you should really <laughs> stick to school, man. I'm not kidding. This is not, I don't think this is going to really do well for you. And I listened. I And I think that actually in, the, in, the, in a weird way, it really helped. It actually helped my art career because I ended up putting so much effort into studying. Like, you know, I tried to become what they wanted, which was a doctor. Okay. You know, it was like, if you ever heard any, uh, like, immigrant experience, uh, stand-up comedy, same thing, like a a minus. What the hell is this kind of you know, reactions? Like I, <laughs> I got a C once. It was for band, <laughs> and I was terrified. I was. And it's not like they were like yelling at me or hitting me or anything. I mean, they were like you know, beautiful parents, but I was just scared because it was the first time I'd sure. just failed. So I mean, a B maybe, but a C. Good lord, that was just so incomprehensible. And I remember I started hiding behind the. Uh, I hid behind a chair. This is like fifth grade, sixth grade, and I was just before my dad would get home. My dad was like, oh, "I'm gonna get home to like five. so I like I started hiding it, like you know, three thirty. <laughs> and of course, my dad got home. He's like, "What? It's banned? Who cares?" <laughs> right. 
are you, are you going to pursue this? I'm like, no. He's like, yeah, well, then don't worry if you're not, if you're not great at baritone. That's not going to keep you out of college. Yeah, so I'd read that you were going to go into pre-med. Um, so, like, what kind of doctor were you planning to be? Uh, dermatology. Okay. I had a really good experience with the dermatologist uh, growing up, Dr. Armand Cognetta. It's the, it sounds like a spy name. It's such a beautiful, <laughs> right. perfect name. Uh, but this guy was just really amazing, uh, really amazing uh, dermatologist. He uh, was a, one of the guys that was pioneering how to find uh, tumors with dogs. With dog, oh, with dog wow. be able to smell tumors before, even though they couldn't test, so that dog would smell over your body and find the tumor. He's one of those dudes. He also has a really weird, uh, huge collection of Florida maps. <laughs> is he from Florida? He, yeah, he, uh, his practice is in Florida. He gave me a real um, straightforward uh, talking to him. He's like, uh, I followed him around for a day. And then uh, at the end of the day, uh, I was in his office and he's like, uh, check it out. I work all the time. I got a family. I can make sure they're taken care of and they get anything they want. But at the same time, I'm working all the time. Mm-hmm. So you really got to decide if you want to do this kind of work, it's demanding. If you want to be bad at it, then no worries. You can just, you know, goof off. And I was like, yeah, I don't worry. He's like, oh, then it's going to be, it doesn't stop. You will always have to be studying. You'll always have to be on the cutting edge. Everything he said basically just sounded to me like, because I'm also, in, I, I, I can, I'm industrious, but at the same time, I'm inherently lazy. So everything he said just sounded like, it sounded like the whole, like, you know, it's eight years of medical school. I was like, oh my God, it's, it sounds like so so much looking back eight years is nothing yeah i don't know what i was, I don't know what I was scared of so then you ultimately went into to become an english major right so how did yes. you go from dermatology to english by gradually lowering my parents expectations <laughs> i told them i also was the thing i was getting the best grade i could walk into english class and have to take notes and then Within about three assignments, I could figure out what the professor wanted. Did they want something original or did they want something that was just parroted back from class? And if I, once I figured out which way they're going, it was, you know, easy to get an A. But um, and it was fun just, you know, for your life to read Moby Dick and write about it. And by the end of it, though, I realized I would just be solving other people's puzzles. And I saw some folks enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying it. But I was just looking at the professors that I admired and what they were doing, you know, with their uh, professional lives. And it just seemed like they were trying to figure out what another person did. And the other person could say right out, hey, it's what I was doing. But they were like, shh, the game is I don't tell you. And y'all all got to figure out for the rest of your lives. Here you go. That's crazy. So, so you get to the end of your, your bachelor's degree. You kind of figure out, hey, this is not really what I want to do. Was that, um, I mean, how did that feel? Just Was there a sense of like, being lost just not knowing where to go next yes. or did you kind of have a sense of what you because you went to savannah like art college after that did you finally convince your parents to let you pursue art my dad tried to get me on last shot tried to get me to go to a business school and i happened to ask for this is weird i shouldn't have i should have learned this but i asked for a, a professor i had for a recommendation and he could tell uh, he knew me well enough that that was a terrible idea so I found out later through a friend of my dad's that was on the board at, at the school I was applying to, uh, that they had seen the recommendation said, by the way, that, this professor wrote a terrible recommendation said, do not let this guy in, not a business guy. And, uh, that was right. I, uh, later on, I actually sent a, sent, sent him a, some, uh, some nice, uh, candy as a thank you. But, uh, yeah, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design just for a minute, trying to figure it out. 
while I was in college, I had an internship at um, Backer Spielvogel and Bates. And I was there as a, just as an art director intern. I actually had a, it was kind of weird, as a, as a really terrible movie called Soul Man. But uh, C. Thomas Howell has to meet the person whose place he took, whose scholarship he took. I had to meet the person apparently whose place I took. He was there, oh, but no. in another capacity. And he couldn't figure, he's like, how did you uh, get this? Uh, I'm, I'm at U- University of Texas studying advertising. What are you studying? I'm like, English. And he's like, <laughs> and, you're, and you're an art director? I'm like, uh-huh. He's like, uh-huh. Okay. They said, yeah, it was, it was complete. Just my dad knew a guy. Oh, boy, to be clear, I was really good because I got in there. I was supposed to be just kind of helping somebody. What happened was they had a uh, copywriter, uh, Stacy Parks, and she was uh, didn't have art director yet. So they said, until we, you know, suss one out and hire one, uh, just give her this kid and he can work with her on, on stuff. And uh, I was, we had this uh, campaign for Fruitables gum. It was a, a gum with some juice in the middle. I don't know. And uh, I did storyboards of a cartoon approach of animated approach. Uh, we sold it. And, uh, then I had to leave summer was up. So Stacy went over to England with the, the animation studio and supervised the, uh, the commercial with my, uh, my storyboards. But the point was I was just, I was there as an intern. I walked out with, or I had a, a reel or I had like a 30 second commercial. Like nice. and I think we sold one for that. Yeah. So how did you find out about, I mean, how oh. did you, so that was what I could point out. I was like, Hey, I'm good at this. And my dad's friend is like, yeah, he's pretty good at this. We, you maybe should consider going to advertising. And I was like, is it kind of like art? He's like, it's like art except you can make money. I went, oh, perfect. <laughs> Avoid that starving thing they kept warning me about. So I went to go, uh, went to advertising school while I was at Savannah College of Art and Design. I was just waiting for uh, my, see if I get accepted, got accepted. Uh, it was pretty easy, obviously. It was a, it, at the time, it was the, it was the most prestigious advertising program. Uh, nice. to get into. So I was really trying hard, uh, but it was easy because I kind of had a, had a reel already. Mm. So I got in uh, and then slowly over time, I realized, especially by talking to other folks who were in the business, that um, the adage is that you spend all this time to make a very creative book, to make a book that's, you know, really unique, really has a voice of advertising. And then uh, you send it off and you get hired on the strength of that. And then you never get to do anything that uh, engaging or creative again. You're basically... It, unless you're just, you know, or a superstar, but usually you're going to be doing diaper ads. You're going to be doing, you know, HR block ads. That's, that's one of the things too, when you make your ad book, chew, they expect you to choose hard uh, products to advertise. I actually had a, a buddy, Sean Thompson. He, um, he ended up like running the whole program, uh, UT eventually, the, uh, the uh, creative advertising program. But uh, he had a, uh, HR block ad in his thing. It was really impressive. He had like three head old, head old series. It was perfect. It was, it communicated, hey, frustrated taxes, tell us. <laughs> kind of stuff, yeah. So how did you end up at UT? Because you were d- doing the degree at Savannah. I think you got your master's from UT. How did you end up there? I was, that was where you're supposed to, I was, like you said, I was lost. And uh, advertising I seemed like a good place to go. Uh, so I, I, I was at SCAD until I got in. I I thought I was going to be an advertiser. Then after I, after I got IUT, I was like, oof, I had another bad, again, further lowering my parents' expectations of me. And at this point I'm getting kind of long in the tooth. So they're like, dude, you need to figure out your life. I was like, okay, I got one more idea. And if this fails, I promise I'll, 
I'll figure it out. I'm going to try to be a gig poster artist. And they're like, oh, this is more of those rats with Wolverine claws. I'm like, actually, yeah. This is the idea that's going to convince us? <laughs> yeah. I said, here's what I want to do. Let me have, I'm, I'm going to try to do this for about two years. I can do side work and advertise. I was getting like uh, animatic, I'm sorry, um, storyboard work. For some from some uh, local agencies, there was an agency uh, in San Antonio that uh, hired me a lot, and uh, it was that was basically paid the bills. And I kept doing uh, uh, gig posters, did it with local bands, expecting that my work was going to be so great that people would hear about it across the nation and want to hire me. And uh, that did not work out. That did not happen. So I was like, "Shoot, what do I do?" And I asked uh, my good friend uh, Jeff Pavito. I was like, "Hey." How do you work for bands people have heard of? He goes, uh, write the write the club. Say so he basically laid out the Kozik uh, initiative. Write the club. Say you'll uh, give them fifty posters, and you're going to sell fifty yourself or a hundred, whatever. And I did that. My first one doing that was the Cramps, I believe, and my second was White Stripes. And that's what took off. Yeah. Then, yeah. Then I, I was able to go. Hey, Pop. Guess what? I made it underneath <laughs> a year. Got some more jobs. And so when you were first getting your start, um, from what I understand, uh, there was a, a guy named Dirty Steve, which what a great name, uh, Dirty Steve, from Austin uh, for a band called The Pink Swords. Was that the, the local bands that you were talking about as far as getting your start in gig posters? I'm having uh, lunch with Dirty Steve on Monday oh, okay. here in New York City. He, uh, he uh, what's to a small Dirty Steve uh, sidebar. Uh, he was in Austin. He has... Uh, house burned up oh my god and uh, he was uh, doing data entry and all the people at work were like you're an amazing you're amazing at this job and we all heard about what happened and we feel terrible so the entire office took a collection up and you know he was like seven thousand bucks to help you get me you know, get started he's like wow this is amazing thank you so much i quit i'm moving to new york <laughs> this is the exact amount of money i kind of needed to, to pick up stakes like no we, we gave it so you'd stay he's like yeah no i understand what you're intended to work for my life but i, I got different ones Thank you. And uh, I'll send you a postcard. And then he came over here and started uh, Human Head Records, which, according to all reports, is the best record store in New York. So, uh, Amazing. yeah, he pulled it off. That's awesome. So did your uh, you know, experience in advertising school, did that help you in any way in the gig posters jobs that you started out? Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot. Of, I learned all the, all the dirty tricks and I was able to apply it to uh, fun stuff instead of, you know, heart medication. Uh, yeah, definitely. I had really great instructors, uh, basically teach me, you know, fundamentals of layout and not so much Photoshop Our Photoshop instruction was 30 minutes where they uh, showed us how to use the rubber stamp tool. And that was it. That's all I've gotten again, inherently lazy. Well, that was enough for me. So I, at this point, I, I still didn't know how to use channels. I'm not quite sure what that is. I felt, I felt better that Alan, uh, Hines said, yeah, me either. I'm like, really? Oh, good. Everyone keeps saying it like it's just supposed to be expected. Jeez. But anyway, uh, I don't know. Advertising, to, yeah, it gave me a gave me an insight. I think definitely. I mean, that's in the end of the day, that's what gig posters were. That's what even the alternative movie posters were. It's a different form of advertising. For Mondo, it was it was a means of getting people almost to pay for the advertising. Right. Otherwise, it wasn't valued. <laughs> And so you mentioned the White Stripes uh, and how you connected with them originally with this sort of grassroots, I'm going to write the venues and, and just put feelers out. How did that become you being like a stable member of the art for, for the White Stripes and then ultimately Jack? Um, the, I did the first poster 
And the poster was the, it's, it's about the only poster I've ever done where I had the idea like in a snap. It was in my head exactly what it was supposed to look like. I did it. It only took me about two hours, three hours maybe. So, which has not happened again ever. But uh, it, the end result looked exactly like what was in my head. I've rarely ever had that happen. So I sent it off and then uh, I included some business cards uh, in the box and I got a call on uh, the day of the show. The show was in Lyon, France. So I got a call uh, early in the morning and uh, it was this uh, the road manager, John Baker. And he said, hey, it's John Baker. Uh, just, I'm looking at these uh, posters. You sent them like, oh, do you like them? He's like, yeah, who gave And he started lighting into me, <laughs> basically saying, who gave you the permission? Da, 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 da. This is, you know, you're not allowed to do this. White Stripes own the, the whole nine yards. And I was freaking out going, Jeff didn't say this was going to happen. <laughs> and then at the very end, uh, he's like, but everyone loves this poster a lot. So we would like to try to make this our tour poster for the uh, American leg of the tour. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And then uh, the lawyer uh, heard about this, uh, Stacy, and she's like, hey, I just got uh, the White Stripes out of a problem with Citizen Kane and all this rigmarole. And I'm sorry, do you have permission to even use Orson Welles? No, forget about this. Make one of the poster. <laughs> so I came up with, I said, hey, I have an idea. I did four posters very quickly, four ideas over in a weekend, wow. four, four dates, and they all got approved. And then Jack broke his finger and was out of commission for a minute. I then trashed those four posters. Well, I, did. I just wanted to show them how fast I could work, but I knew I could do better than that. So I, and to me, that wasn't, here's the thing. Like I said, I'm inherently lazy, but I'll be industrious if it's towards making sure things are perfect. I don't want someone thinking I did a bad job. So I trashed them, did four more. And those four were the first uh, four I did after that Susan Kane poster, including the Two at the Greek, I believe, in L.A. The big blow-ups of Jack and Meg's is Jack's and Meg's face with Jack's uh, mouth with the bird over it. Right, right. That was me trying to imitate Criterion covers at the time, which was a big influence. And so how did that become you being the guy? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so I did that, and uh, Jack liked those four posters. And then he's like, you know what? Let's have this guy do a poster for every date that's left on the elephant tour. And even that wasn't. I didn't do all those. Uh, the merch manager's like, that's oh, a lot of posters. Let's just do, you know, however many. So we did the important dates and then, or the big dates. They're all important, of course. But I uh, did the big dates. And then uh, after that, I got a, I got asked to do us uh, under Blackpool Lights, the first uh, White Stripes uh, DVD. And also at the same time, concurrently, I got asked to do uh, the White Stripes single for Jolene. That was the first time I got asked to do nice records. So I was, it's my first record, seriously. First, I was quite freaked out. And what was that experience? I mean, did you approach that differently than you approached poster work? I was trying to figure out, I was trying to, I was trying to tell a story at the time with Under Black Pole Lights. Trying, I had this idea about it being layers. If you saw, there's like a, the elephant's like underneath all the sediment and uh, rocks of, of Black Pole. And then inside there are all these like, these clear plastic, uh, imagery that you could put together to make one image, pull them apart and have three separate images. And we use those images for the, for the posters they made for the theatrical exhibition of it. Um, but yeah, no, I do when it's a package, I, it's, I, I realize it's a bigger canvas. I can tell a, a longer story or a deeper story. Uh, so yeah, I, when I st when I realized that 
option existed for packaging, I was quite you know eager to jump into it. And then, uh, I don't know if I can remember what happened after that. seems like I was just getting more work. And about that time, I was starting to do stuff for uh, Alamo Drafthouse as well. That was right around 2004, 2005. Yeah. So you continued working with the White Stripes. Uh, you ultimately got a Grammy in 2011 for the work that you did uh, on Under Great White Northern Lights, uh, that box set that you and uh, Jack got a Grammy for. Um, what was it like working on that project? Like, Did you know at the time that that was going to be such like an important thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, it's just hearing the description of the tour. To have a band hit every province and territory, not even, you know, Canadian bands do that. Like, I think right. Rush did it, and that was about it. The most Canadian band in the world did it. And after, after that, it's <laughs> like, ugh, there's a lot of time in the, in the truck to get up to none of it. Jeez. But they did it, and it was just such an it was such an interesting tour, such an interesting uh, I think experience, and such an interesting love letter to Canada, mm-hmm. which makes sense for two Detroiters, you know that Canada's right over the over the river for you. So they, uh, if you remember, they they were doing like side concerts every day too, They're, and you didn't know where it was going to be. They might be on a bus, they might be in a bowling alley, it might be Jack and Meg on a boat, just driving by all these people on a pier. It was, Amazing. It was such a crazy thing. So of course, any anything to do with that tour, any documentation was going to be a was going to be a big deal. The, the photography, uh, Autumn DeWald's book was amazing. That was the first time I really saw what it takes to be a photographer too. Mm. Like we were looking, uh, the day-to-day manager, Tiffany Stephens and I were like looking at it and we're like, Phew. wish there was like more pictures of Jack and Meg here. Yeah, and, we're, and then we we asked, could we see all the photos? You know, you took. She's like, oh, you want to get involved? Sure. And she, she sent them all out, and we're looking at all of them. I was like, oh my god, this is a huge mountain of. And I realized the same thing out that she, she was doing the same thing I was trying to do, which was tell a story. And I actually called and I apologized. I was like, I'm so sorry. We even doubted. I, I looked at everything. I totally get what you're trying to do. Uh, so did Tiff. Uh, not going to bring up anything again. This is perfect. I totally, I understand it now. Apologies. I just didn't have, I had never seen how a photography book gets put together before about just the mountain of such a mountainous task to, to take so many, I mean, there's so many photos. I, every, every couple of years, I'll still like maybe go through them just to look, just to remind myself of it. And so how did the nomination process work for that did you did someone submit the project to the academy for consideration or like how does that all work i will say i i normally don't do this because i never think it would it's gonna would be possible to win but that that for that project i talked to tiff i was like we gotta be sure this gets submitted for a grammy i think this could actually win nice and then i did some oh man i did some of that uh the secret stuff <laughs> I wrote out on, on, on notebook paper. I'm like, you're going to win, you're going to win this twenty times because I was like, I really think this is going to have a shot because I, I, I really, I don't know. Again, as far as telling a story, it was a, it was a way. I thought, I thought it was interesting how we were able to tell the same story of the White Stripes, but with completely different characters, completely different uh, imagery, not using imagery from the actual tour. That was all, you know. That's what Autumn, Autumn was doing, so it would be odd to just duplicate that completely. And uh, yeah, it got in, went there. I, as soon as I said my name, I was determined to run to the stage. So yeah. <laughs> I don't want to take up everyone's time. Everyone else is sauntering up you there. You literally you know. sprinted to the stage. <laughs> yeah. 
I thought I was on prices right. I could not believe I wasn't winded. It was, you know me, dude. That's back when I was like a huge smoker too. So it's amazing. I didn't go up there wheezing, but. Were you actually prepared to like do an acceptance speech and everything? Did you have that instinct that you might win? Um, you know how it goes. You might draw out, I'm, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. But if you think you actually are going to win, then it doesn't happen. So I was, if I knew if I prepared a speech, then yeah, that'd be jinxing it. So I did not just, just assume you're not going to win. So you know, yeah, it's sad. But uh, then I did. And I was like, oh, oh goodness. Uh, I, I'll just make something up on, on, on the spot. And that thing I made up, I uh, forgot to thank my wife. So uh, yeah, uh, my <laughs> advice to anyone is uh, prepare a speech. Just <laughs> that includes points. your wife. <laughs> yeah, just names. So, you know, around that same time or maybe a little bit before, um, the White Stripes broke up uh, and, you know, Jack obviously went on to do other things, including his own solo work. Um, So did you like think you were out of a job at that point or did you already have kind of an in with Jack that you knew that that you continue to work work together? Well, at that time, again, my 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 day job was was Mondo. So anything I did for um, for Jack's uh, bands and stuff was, you know, uh, side sidekick stuff. Sure. Uh, but uh, no, when it happened, I'll tell you exactly when it happened. Um, it's 2007, I think. But uh, Florian Bertmer had put out this crazy uh, Ouija board. It was the most demonic looking thing you've ever seen. The The planchette was like a cruci- like an upside down, goat headed, crucified Jesus. It was just horrifying. Covered in sigils uh, uh, from like, you know, old black mass books and stuff. And uh, we thought it was like, Jane and I thought it was amazing. We had it in the house and bad things started happening immediately. Oh, wow. (laughs) So uh, that first week, the the car blew up. We had taken in for, to get the oil changed. They didn't put new oil in and the the engine just destroyed itself. Just seized. On on the road. Yeah. (laughs) We had to, we actually had to, they didn't believe it. They, we had to have, have them pull up their, uh, their videotape to show that they didn't put any oil in. And even then, they made us sign a little paper that said, hey, we'll get you a new engine. So my car has secretly 30,000 more miles on it than it should or, you know, available to it. But uh, they put it in. They said, Don't, you can never uh, sue for this again. Anyway, that happened. Uh, my computer also finally blew up. That was my first big computer purchase. And now I had, I had, a, had a blown up car, a blown up computer. I had a ailment from high school that reappeared. And then also uh, that uh, news that uh, the White Stripes were probably broke up. I was like, I'm getting this Ouija board out of here. This has been a terrible week. This all happened when you came in here. <laughs> gave it to my buddy, Dustin Slater. Dustin does not believe any of that. So, of course, it doesn't affect him at all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sh- talking about the different projects that you do for, for Jack or for, you know, the different uh, bands that he's uh, participated in over the years, I, I really love the consistent color themes that have been established for each band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the White Stripes, obviously, it was, it was red, white and black. Um, you know, his solo work, it's all blue. It's all shades of blue. Like, how did that color theming originally come about? Was that like your decision? Is it something oh, God, Jack no. predefined or how did that? All that is all that is Jack. That's something you'd have to ask him. I couldn't give you a, a, a great answer. I just know he's like sings color coded, and honestly, I think it worked so well with the white stripes. He's like, well, let's keep this up. Yeah. <laughs> How specific is he about the colors, though? Like, is he does he say this exact shade of blue like a branding guideline? Sometimes uh, for the first album, yes, he sent two images. One was of a, a guitar, and the other was of a cake, and they both had the same kind of that weird blunderbuss blue on it and he goes this is the blue i want some to match to this 
He never says a Pantone. It's always like, for, even for White Stripes, it's like uh, Coke Can Red. And, uh, which, and the beauty of that is you can call up the joint and go, hey, uh, just go out and buy a can of Coke. Make sure it looks like that. Hey, did you do that? Because it's looking orange. Uh, sorry, we tried. But uh, yeah, no, he gets, he'll get specific. And then I think on the on um, Boarding House Reach, that's when it went to Electric Blue. He had a lot more, uh, I think he was just doing, well, most of the songs were singing about electricity as well. So I think it was just pumping that uh, aspect of his uh, identity. And so does that color theming um, extend to all the artists that do posters for all the shows? Or is it just contained to albums and the work that you do? I do not supervise a poster series anymore, but when I did, I would tell them, here's the blue. If you want to use different blues, sure. If you really want to be that person that goes, can I make a Jack White poster with red on it? Go ahead, but it's probably not going to get approved. That did not stop Chris Everhart, who actually is the only person who's managed to make that happen. I've tried to. And Alan Hines tried. Alan Hines had a great reasoning for it, and both of us got shut down. But uh, Chris, uh, he, he's done that twice. He did it once with uh, red on a Jack White poster, and a second time with using Masonic imagery, which used to be verboten. Like Jack would say, I don't want to uh, have Masonic stuff. People think I'm a weird mason anyway, so <laughs> right. let's leave this off. And then uh, by the time uh, the Masonic uh, Temple in uh, Detroit became like the Jack White Theater, I think he got uh, you know less worried about it. And Chris submitted this really amazing 33-degree uh, uh, Masonic uh, triple-headed eagle. And I was like, I, I gave him a warning. I was like, yeah, he's probably going to say no to this. Oh, he said yes. You know. Wow, surprise. So how did you become the, the guy that organized the poster series? I mean, it's one thing to do the art and, and create a lot of the art yourself, but then actually organizing the series of other artists is, it seems like a different like muscle to flex. How did you become that guy? I was doing all the posters. I mean, I was really doing all of them. I mean, I remember those early years, I was making like 30 to 50 posters per tour, which looking back, crazy. yeah, because I had a day job. That was insane. Yeah. I really, I would not, ask Jenny, I would be days where I would just, it's like, you know, four or five hours, and then I would just pull myself out of the, off the freaking bed and just get back into it. Just, I don't know, it sucked. But as far as organizing it, the main thing was, uh, I thought if I, uh, eventually we got to the point where the posters were popular enough that Jack was like, hey, I spoke to, or he wrote to me and Amber, the merch manager, and said, we should do a poster for every show, every day. doesn't matter if it's, and, you know, Timbuktu, we should make a poster for it. You know, show everyone that the, every date's important. Because it's looking, for him, it was looking weird that, like, why do some posters, some shows get posters and other shows get posters? It's like saying those shows aren't important enough. And I, he was like, we need to make them for everybody. And uh, Amber's like, great. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a lot more. And he was like, yeah, I can't do all of them. <laughs> uh, but I said, I will... I'll put it together. And the main reason was so I could make sure that I got, you know, good dates. <laughs> so, and eventually, what, well, here's what's weird. Eventually, then I got guilty. So I would give people like the Los Angeles dates and I would, and I would take something like, you know, Latvia because I want to make sure you know, <laughs> we, had, we had a shot. So is there an art, like an art to lining up artist to dates? Like, is, is there something that like a lot of thought that went into those decisions or was it just people's availability and, and how those dates lined up? Part of it is that in the early days, he, Jack was not that into uh, illustrators. I mm -hmm. think the reason he liked my work so much was it was so uh, hard photography based. And that was only because I had to make 30 posters. I couldn't, 
you know, that was the quickest way to do them. And then uh, what opened it up was Tomer Hanuka. He did this illustration of uh, Jack and Meg for Spin Magazine during Nicky Thump uh, era. And uh, Jack's like, wow, he made me look really cool. Yeah, you can get this, yeah, if you can get this guy to draw me, sure, this guy can draw. So not only that, but Tomer ended up doing a whole collection of singles, just redrawing the covers because of that uh, spin illustration. But the point is, eventually Jack opened up more to certain illustrators. You'd have to, you know, show and see if you'd be into it. So some folks, it would be, uh, I tried to arrange it. So uh, I tried to get a lot of uh, dates or artists that would be by, uh, by the state of the show. So Jay Ryan, that's why you'd always get Chicago shows. I knew Jay would do a good job, assuming that Jack's, you know, liked his illustrations, and he could do his own printing. So he could just drive them to the show. It saves the uh, touring uh, company uh, shipping money. So that was the main goal, was just try to see what's the most uh, economical way of uh, pulling the uh, tour series off where it's a poster per show, and just the most less headachey way. So having artists in the state that that does it. Otherwise, I don't know. It's just, yep, yeah, just basically... Folks that I knew, folks that I thought would, uh, I had helped if people were obviously a big fans of Jack uh, and White Stripes. So that's why Slater was such a prominent uh, part of it early on. And then later on, Chris Everhart. In fact, that was actually probably what made it happen more than anything. Honestly, Mike was having Slater because remember, if I was doing 50 posters, Slater was probably doing, you know, 20. And same with uh, Chris once uh, we started doing, uh, once Deadweather happened. And so for, you know, I, I definitely, there's been a long history, 20, 20 ish years, I guess, that you've done some form of work with, with Jack for the other bands that you've done work for over the years, um, that aren't a Jack White project. Um, what kind of criteria do you apply to accepting those types of projects? Is there some like certain type of work you won't do, or do you have to like the band in order to, to, to do work for them? What kind of criteria do you apply when you're proposed like a new project? I'll say there's not been that many. I don't get asked as often as I think people believe. Uh, and I think part of that is because, yeah, the guy, I, my looks associated so much with Jack, it's like, you know, getting Derek Riggs to do your heavy metal record. It <laughs> look weird because it's like, oh, it's the Iron Maiden guy? It feels wrong that he's on a Judas Priest album. I, I mean, I have a Nine Inch Nails poster from you, so I know you do other bands. <laughs> that well, I I tell you what, uh, if it's uh, Austin City Limits, yeah, I say yes no matter what, okay, because it's such a great show, it's such a great institution for Austin, and it's going to be a, a a performance everyone will be familiar with and will want that poster. That really helps. But uh, otherwise, no. If someone asks if it's good music, I'll I'll uh, I'll do it if it, if the the money's right. Yeah, but. Uh, Maybe early on, I had some concerns about the style of music, i.e. if it was too hippie. <laughs> but uh, as I've gotten older and becoming slowly more of a hippie myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. What's that being? So, I can't believe I was uh, being so uh, judgmental on music that essentially just wanted people to have a good time. Right, right. Yeah. How much do you have to know about the band to, um, to feel like you've done a good job on, on something for them? I guess if it's met well by fans, that's how I know if I did a good job. I, I, I did a lot of posters early on for Ava Brothers, well, a lot, like four or five, but I did one that was for the, uh, their song, The Tin Man, and had this uh, famous uh, Depression-era photo of, uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called Migrant Mother. It's this woman holding her, her baby, and she's, you can tell things aren't going well. 
and I have a tin man walking on top, completely oblivious to what's going on. That did not go over well with fans. And I felt terrible. So I redid the, I actually redid the poster. I did got another date. I did a different version of the song. My, I did a different interpretation of the song, how to present it visually. And that poster went over great with fans. That I couldn't stop selling. I could sell a thousand of those. So, uh, I think it's just, they ask. And if, uh, yeah, if I maybe I have a good idea, I'll do research. I mean, I'll listen to interviews. I'll do all the, okay. Yeah. So that, so that helps you get enough information to feel like you're meeting the needs of the fans, at least knowing something about the band. I also want to know where the band's coming from. I want to know about their origins, if they're what, where all the members are, came from. Anything. I mean, for the reason I'm so, I was so good or adept at doing Jack White stuff was at the time I was reading every interview I was making because it was part of the job. So if there is something that was there on TV, I'd, I'd watch it. Go into the submit mixer and then we'll uh, maybe come out later. And I'll admit, actually, for a new band, you're right. That it, it, it does. Maybe I don't accept everything as as uh, as easily as I've said because you're right. I, I will know if it's a new band I know nothing about. That's a lot of homework. I might not. Right. It depends on what kind of uh, schedule I have at the time. Okay. So in addition to posters over the years, uh, you also created a wonderful series of original art pieces uh, centered around Charlie Brown, this Charlie Brown character, um, which if people aren't aware, you use Charlie Brown as kind of a, or a version of Charlie Brown um, to represent stories in your own life. Um, so the series was called Grief. The original series was, I think, 100 um, that were shown at Gallery F in Chicago. Um, how did that all get kicked off and how did you first... Uh, kind of establish that series. It's interesting you bring that up because I've not, I feel weird doing them now. I don't even like, I, I worried that that was when I was younger and just wanted to complain all the time. <laughs> and that's, it comes off to me a little bit like that. There was this, there was a guy that uh, came to that first show and screamed his uh, critique of it all. It was oh, not wow. a positive critique. <laughs> And then stormed out, and that's always stuck me. I was like, yeah, he's, he's probably kind of right. I won't tell you what the critique was. It was kind of foul. But he was actually probably on the money. Uh, if, I want, if I could do them, if I was going to do them again or do another show, actually, I'd totally, I'd have a different approach. Off the top, I'd probably want to do stuff that's more like, uh, I do, this word, I think, gets overused too much. But uh, things that I'm like actually thankful for, I'd probably do like pink-colored uh, sheets and just draw you know, Charlie Brown going, ugh. Because, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, uh, it could be worse. <laughs> sure, sure. So how did that How did that get started? How did you connect with, uh, was it Zisu that you, you yeah, looked Zisu, up? Yeah, Zisu came up to me at Flatstock and he's like, uh, hey, would you like to do a show? And I was like, let me think about it. And then later on that Flatstock, I found him again. And I said, I have an idea for a show. It will not make you any money. If you're interested, <laughs> I'll do it. And he goes, yes. And I was like, awesome. And that about being able to say that just allowed anything to happen. Just knowing that I didn't have that obligation that this had to absolutely succeed. It's just my stuff. Me talking about myself. And originally the idea I pitched was just a whole show about dead pets. He agreed to that. So trust me, he was thrilled. And it's like, you know, instead I think about just doing a lot of Charlie Browns. Oh, oh, great. Thank you. We'll, we'll probably do a little bit better at that than uh, your dead pet parade. But the idea was I was going to get a lot of artists to come in and basically just do interpretations of their own experiences with losing uh, losing animals in their youth. Mm -hmm. I still did it. It was still part of the grief show from 
my own experiences. But uh, yeah, I said 100 because it sounded like a, a good number. Uh, Edmiston, is, I've seen him wreck his own life saying that doing the same kind of thing. He's like, you got it. If it's not 100, who's going to care? <laughs> the difference is I'm drawing Charlie Brown with a, a pen. He's got to paint 100 right. eye portraits. Anyway, uh, I, so that Zizu, uh, we, the only concession was he was like, can we make some of these into prints just so we can have, make some, make something off this. I was like, you bet. And then, uh, had the show in Chicago and it was, uh, a surprise. There was a line. I was quite happy people showed up. Yeah. I really love how, how thoughtful they are. I mean, the way that you kind of integrate your own story into the, to the Charlie Brown, uh, like as an avatar, uh, what, what do you, I guess, find so right about Charlie Brown as a character to represent yourself? I tell you, it was weird. When I was a kid, I didn't read much. Peanuts wasn't my thing. It was Beetle Bailey. I really loved Beetle Bailey. Why? He was lazy. <laughs> sleeping all the time. And then people were constantly just wrecking his world. Sarge was beating the crap out of me. I obviously got bullied a lot in school. But, uh, yeah, um, Charlie Brown happened. Uh, I don't know if I ever even told her this. I always meant to make it a big presentation. But uh, my cousin Sue uh, Callahan, she um, she gave me this. Uh, it's like this little library of uh, Charlie Brown books. It's it's common to find. There are like five of them. You pull them out, and it's half one book. You flip it over, and it's supposed to be another book. So it has two covers. Anyway, I. She got that for me right about when I was starting to go hard into posters, and I was it, I hadn't read Charles Schultz in so long and I just forgot exactly how for lack of a better word mature it was how adult it's it's just tiny adults talking about how you know the misery of life and it really just kind of it really just struck me I don't know the, the, that collection of books and I ended up uh, drawing a lot of weird Charlie Browns on the backs of uh, you know handbills or whatever I was sending out to customers in fact that's how I got off the uh, dead pet uh uh, initiative for the, the original idea for the show was uh, Mitch Putnam was like, "You should do those Charlie Browns. He keeps sending it to people. People like <laughs> people like those." <laughs> Here, here's a tip, Rob: the stuff that people respond to, more of that. <laughs> right. And the problem is, if you got a punk rock worm in your brain, you're like, "People like this. I'm doing something wrong." Right. Makes something even worse. But I listened, and uh, yeah, uh, did really well. I. Uh, it was hard. I'll admit some of those were uh, some tough, some tough things to revisit and try and make them accessible, I guess, without being just too depressing. But And the one thing that always fascinated me is they always have such incredible, I mean, you always tell such incredible backstories. There's like a, an enormous amount of depth um, in the stories behind all of them. Um, several of them you've posted on your Instagram or just conversations that you have with people at, at, conventions um have you ever considered like writing any of those stories down like in a written form um, or are these drawings kind of you know was your way of telling your stories i thought about doing both uh side by side but it would be it would require an enormous amount of writing and i'll be honest with you i am not i don't like writing so much i mean i know i'm very good at it but the problem is there's just so many places you can absolutely see mistakes whereas with art you can't tell. Maybe it was intended. Who knows? But if you use the wrong it's versus it's, then yeah, you'll get it. Right. <laughs> and I do that. I got an English degree. I'm supposed to be good at this. And I'm, I'm still doing, I'm still making that mistake. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, uh, 
I thought about it, but it, it, if it's something, if it's something I ever do, it'd be something I do like probably in the future when I can rest. So you think there might be more, but just uh, a little bit more of a positive slant? I'd like to do it. That would be a different book, I think. I think one would be Grief. I think the other would be called Good Grief, actually. Yeah. Okay. That'd be the pink ones. But I'd want the Grief ones just to be all the, the yellow ones. Mm. Yellow is supposed to be the color of just sadness and then the color of uh, death. If you're familiar with, uh, you know, Jalos in, in Italy, the the film genre of... If you've seen the film genre where it's a guy wearing like a black uh, glove and he's got a razor blade and oh no, watch out ladies. No, I haven't seen and that. The whole, <laughs> okay. Well, that's called, uh, it's a genre called Jello. And basically uh, the whole movie is spent with who's the killer. You know what it is? It's a genre that's essentially a law and order. You spend most of the movie guessing different red herrings. You're like, oh, I bet it was the boyfriend. And then it's the boyfriend, or the doctor, whoever. They're called Jallo because they're based off uh, these pulp novels they used to sell in France, and they would just have yellow covers, and that's how you knew it was like going to be like a, a murdery one. And uh, the book title, uh, the book cover, uh, just applied to the films that they were based off of later. Yellow is always used as a color of something going on, either sickness or decadence. It's it's rarely a color that's uh, pure happiness. Only time I can off even think offhand of that would be. Uh, Daffodils or Judy Garland's funeral. <laughs> I know, honestly, uh, Liza Minnelli apparently told everyone to come uh, to wear yellow. She said that was her mom's favorite color, oh, and wow. she wanted to be uh, she wanted people to be happy. And they covered her uh, casket with like uh, yellow uh, roses or daffodils or something. But yeah, it's it's important color. It's a weird. It's a color with a lot of flaw story behind it. Yeah. Do you like uh, or do you wish you had more time to uh, spend on your own personal work? Like, do, do you? Wish that that's something you put more of your time into. Of course, I wish. I wish I could do art all day. I have again happened at Mondo. It's been happening here at my current job. Spend a lot of time helping other people make their art more than I can make my own. So I don't hear anyone really complaining that much. There's not enough more of this stuff out there. So uh, I think it's uh, it is what it is. Uh, if I get some time, if I. When I retire, maybe that'll be the time, or maybe by that time, I'll just be so sick of it, I won't, I won't do it, who knows. I will say this, if you have an idea, anything you want to pursue, don't put it off. It'll never happen. So if I have, if I do, when I do have, like, maybe once in a while, I'll have an idea for a, a piece, I might do it and just put it away. People don't want to see it. There's still, like, a lot of even Hedoras I've never posted. That was, like, uh, during uh, COVID, during lockdown, yeah, like uh, that was my version of losing my uh, losing my shit. It was just <laughs> drawing Hedorah every day. God, I'd never seen the movie before. I'd never even seen a Godzilla movie before. Only one I'd seen was the Brian Cranston one. And uh, suddenly, I was like, "God, finally see what everyone's talking about." Since I'm you know directing all these posters for the for this franchise, and uh, that uh, Godzilla versus Hedorah, my God, it's just such a amazingly perfect weird movie i can't believe got made all the other godzilla movies are you know high and low but that one's something special uh so shifting gears a bit um you know i did want to talk to you about mondo um kind of the the early days of getting started and then also what's happened more recently um and so starting in in 2004 i believe is when it first i believe it's first kicked off i saw a couple different dates but 2004 seemed to be the most consistent one um not long after you you really started doing work with the white stripes actually um oh trust uh, me that helped really 
it started as Mondo Tees, uh, you know, with you and Tim from Alamo Draft House uh, here in Austin, um, where you ob- obviously served as creative director for for almost twenty years. Um, how did that originally start as like a T-shirt shop with Tim? Yep, that was just Tim. That was Tim uh, wanting to have a. Pre- if I have to guess, I'm sure Tim, like me, a child of the '70s, probably saw. T-shirts plus and all the balls when he was a kid and wanted to get like those cool press on T-shirts because that was just like that was the only shirts you could get for um, for um, licensed like franchise stuff at the time. Mm. It felt like like if you want to return the Jedi shirt, it's going to be a tss. yeah. And they <laughs> suck too because remember they would just tear apart like within oh, yeah. like, five washings, crack and everything. Ugh. So uh, he bought like a whole box of these things uh, in uh, Canada and wanted to use them for a T-shirt shop. Because I mean, if you go to flea markets, every once in a while, someone will find some in the back of a truck, and all of a sudden you have like a whole mid box of uh, Hardy Boys Arnons from like 1975. So uh, he thought this might be a fun thing. Also, the the theater, I think, of seeing your shirt being made in front of you with that big press also right. helps and putting you know holding it. So he uh, did that, and then uh, at the same time, they're also doing a few posters every once in a while, screen prints. So it wasn't me; I wasn't the first one going, "Hey, screen printed." movie posters. It was actually League doing a few of those for uh, important screenings, including uh, one for uh, uh, Evil Dead that he did himself. He wow. still had the screens okay. uh, down in the basement. But the those posters, I looked at them and they were very, for lack of a better term, uh, really full of a, a lot of information. That, uh, like They felt like a ladies' night kind of flyers, you know? Okay. Where it's like telling you how much the well drinks are and all this kind right. of stuff. You know, it, seemed like a, it seemed really dense. Yeah. And uh, I figured if you could maybe do this more as a gig poster style where it's more art and less information, you know, then uh, maybe you could have a, have an effect. So that was the pitch. The first pitch came when uh, they had the Quentin Tarantino uh, film festival. Okay. QT5. Uh, I had to wait in line for that every day to get a good seat. Jenny and I were like trying to like, you'd wait for like three or four hours until it, until the theater opened. So you're just with this line of people just sitting on the steps uncomfortably. And uh, I was like, I'm not doing this for the next one. My God. So I had to talk. I was like, you know, for QT5, we're just selling uh, coffee mugs and one 11 by 17 poster that it was printed really strange. I'm not going to decry the design, but it was like, it was like yellow and gray or something. You could barely tell it was something that was on paper. I said, uh, so the next time we had, they had, uh, they announced QT6, I approached Tim and I said, should make six posters. I'll help you. I can put this together. And it did. And that was what's really important about those, that first Tarantino thing was that was the first time I worked with Tyler Stout. Oh, nice. And what happened was we made a regular version of the poster, but we also made a color variant just of Tyler's. No one else had one. No one else really seemed like they would have made a difference in the, in the presentation. But for Tyler, it was, there's a pink one and there was a blue one. The pink one we charged $100, which we thought was insane <laughs> at that time. Remember, we're still charging $25, bucks, 35 bucks for these posters. And uh, they sold out first night, like within the first hour. Nice. The, the expensive ones. And that's Tam and I both were like, yeah, I think there might be something here. You know you had something, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So it, it started because you didn't want to wait in line for Quentin Tarantino. Oh, that QT6 convention? is perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tim Doyle was uh, running uh, Mondo Tees at the time. So uh, Tim was in the theater. And this is still just the Colorado Street Theater. It's just uh, flight of stairs up, uh, one flight of stairs to a uh, one screen theater and a little uh, 
pass through for beer and, and you know fries. Uh, so I, I'd see Tim Doyle. I was like, "Hey, uh, here are those posters for the." He's like, "Yeah, come on up." I'm like, "Oh, should I go get back in line?" He's like, "What? No, you're here." I'm like, "Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, how perfect! Thank you." I'll just sit, take a seat, not on the stairs. And uh, a lot of it was just kind of that. I didn't take like even for the first two years, I didn't take any money. Mm. Like Mitch got paid before I did. I really got there to bring Mitch on, yeah. But I was my thing was I knew it was a nascent thing emerging i didn't want to i wanted to be able to grow and i know if they had to pay me on top that would probably not it would probably not seem like something that uh, tim would want to engage in you know because it's kind of it was, it was it was a lot uh so uh that first the first two the first oh god a little bit after that i called him up i kept bothering him so much he said just get in touch with uh, tim doyle if he wants to make posters uh then y'all make posters together i was like sounds great called tim we did it and then after uh tim's like i'm tired of doing all this work and not making the money i'm going to start this myself he actually he he i and justin thought about all doing it together on this on the going away from from uh, alamo doing it and i felt i couldn't do that to tim so i was like i'm sorry i just don't think i can do this and uh, Justin had uh, second thoughts too, I think, on that on that on that route. And so um, we he started Nakatomi, uh, and then that's right when Mondo started doing official, making sure everything was officially licensed. We had a few licenses at that point, but uh, it started in earnest uh, once Nakatomi was established. Okay, because like, there's already too much attention on it, on, on it. Studios were looking; they were seeing, "Hey, what, what, what the hell is this?" They had never seen marketing like this before for them right. it's just give away an 11 by 17 thin crappy poster at a screening end of promotional poster story they'd never seen anything like this and what were we, what were we doing honestly we were doing what Kosick did we were beating the the majors they were they were embarrassed that their stuff looked like crap and our stuff i mean that's still evident today you right. go to those uh, studios you'll see the directors or the Producers or the hallways, and they're full of like Mondo style posters, not their own studio posters. Kathleen Kennedy has Ollie Moss posters in her office. Denis Villeneuve <laughs> has Mondo Dune posters in his office. So, yeah, it's just basically beating the beating those folks and saying this. You could do it like this instead. Instead, of these live by seventeen offset crap posters. <laughs> and uh, over time, and as our uh, relationships with the studios improved. Uh, yeah, it became like a de facto thing. They saw the value in it. That time where um, Tim Doyle split off, um, you all were considering maybe going away from Alamo and doing your own thing, but ultimately stayed. Is that when it sort of evolved into its own thing and like Mitch came on board and, and all of it grew from, out of that? Yeah, what happened was there's also some ideas that Tim would have. And I was like, I felt uncomfortable because I'm not being paid. I'm not really technically right. an employee. But I'm doing the work, but I, I still felt like it was, it was uh, his t-shirt shop. So I might not, I, if he had an artist he wanted to use, I was like, Ugh. I might not, uh, my pipe up is, is hard. So after that came out, I was like, uh, Hey, Tim was like, I, uh, Tim league was like, I'm going to put uh, this guy, Justin Ishmael. He's, he's got a lot of good ideas. I want him to work at Mondo. I said, great, check this out. I got to be able to, you know, if it's, there's some bad ideas out there to quash them pretty quickly. So I'll make sure that's understood uh, when he's on board. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, stepping up a little bit. 
I said, I want you to, if you can, we need to also step up our artist game because I'm only no fellow gig poster artists. Anyone else is beyond my, you know, Rolodex. I uh, asked a couple of guys, uh, I asked Todd Slater and Dale Danger for a recommendation of someone who could curate and help pick, you know, higher level artists. And they both said the same name, Mitch Putnam, who I'd never met in my life. And so I called him up and apparently said, I like, he was terrified when he got the email because he, he'd been, we'd been talking back and forth already trying to, you know, he'd buy posters from me. But uh, he said he heard how scary my voice was. <laughs> So I called up and I was like, do you want a job? And he's like, yep. And so I got Tim to hire him. And uh, Tim basically offered him a percentage. That was how he hired. He didn't give him a salary. He said, you can get this percent. And it was a it was a big percent at the time. And uh, after about, I think, another year of that, when Mitch's checks started uh, being bigger than like what Justin <laughs> was making as his salary, that's when I was like, okay, fellas, y'all can afford to pay me now. Let's go make a case and talk to Tim. That's when I finally got uh, officially hired. Wow. So you went unpaid for a long time. I, the ba- I didn't want the baby to die. <laughs> <laughs> we were still making a crib. So once, you know, the baby did get out of its crib and, and, it, and it was its own thing. Um, what was your role as creative director? Like how much direction did you, you, you have to give for a particular project? Was it more, a lot of back and forth where it's more like a more collaboration between you and the artist or was it more smaller things where, you know, things it's, just need to be adjusted here and there? Any way it can happen, it happens. Sometimes I might give them the idea, they draw it up. Sometimes they have a fully formed thing and it's done. Sometimes they go, hey, if y'all, want any po- or if y'all are doing posters for, I don't know, uh, Godzilla versus Hedera, then here's my uh, pitch. Like, oh, wow. In fact, yeah, let's do it right now. Yeah, we got that license. I mean, that's actually quite a bit. Folks just writing in, saying what they wanted to do. And if it if they actually did the thing, it kind of uh, actually how I probably kept my uh, my uh, relevancy with uh, Jack. I wasn't pitch- I wasn't writing out an idea. I was showing him practically finished ideas, like 80 to 95%. The idea being that it leaves less for the viewer to fill in, in, their, in their own head. They see exactly what you're wanting to do and they can either go you know, yes or no, or maybe some small notes. Yeah. You don't rely on their imagination to fill in those gaps. It, Cause there is dissonance. Whatever you think you're describing, whatever picture you think you're making in their head, I promise you it is not happening. Right. And if your picture that you show them is worse than what they had in their head, then you'll, you've lost. They'll really reject it or they'll ask for something vaguely unreasonable. That's the problem. Whatever they have in their head, I promise you, whoever you're pitching this to, if it's a studio uh, person, they're not going to be able to uh, articulate what they have in their head. They just go like, ah, I'm not feeling it. Or maybe something more, I don't know, uh, uh, consequential. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> right. Can you make it feel a bit more culty? That's actually an actual direction I got one time. Was wow. Can you make it, more, make it feel more culty? I delivered uh, 15 roughs. And the guy replied back, ooh, wait, he actually said, I want you to make it feel culty, real drink the purple Kool-Aid stuff. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I sent him 15 designs. He's like, ooh, this is a bit too culty. I'm like, <laughs> you said drink the purple. There's nothing after that. <laughs> right. the, cult's, the cult's done. Once you drink the purple, what do you want? So I actually walked away from that job. I was like, I don't think I can give you what you, what you want. Wow. And that's, that's key too for artists. No joke. Walk away. If you can tell it's going to be a problem, just yeah. get out of there. It's not a good uh, fit. Well, guess what? He hired Emic, and mm-hmm. I saw Emic's solution, and I was like, 
it totally fit the brief. I was like, wow, that's, yeah, well, he got it. This feels culty, <laughs> but not too culty. This is actually I'm, uh, totally on point. Amazing. Um, so do you feel that being, uh, you know, a poster artist yourself helps you be a better art director? You know, oh, because of course. you kind of speak Always. the same language. Being a working artist, A, because you know exactly what they're going through. And you're not someone who's just happened to get this job as a reviewer because you're on your way up within a you know movie studio. This is, you know exactly what they're thinking. You know exactly the pressures that are on them. You know not to say something insane like, can you Photoshop this to be a bit whatever. You know how long things take. So I'm judicious with uh, the changes I ask for. I have to really ask myself, is this change I'm asking for worth it? Is it going to improve sales? Mm. Or is it just some personal peccadillo of mine that, you know, I, I don't like pink and green next to each other. So <laughs> if it's more of the latter, then I don't, I just, I shut my mouth and it's good. It looks great. Or if, if it's a minor thing that I think would improve it, there's some tension or there's a, could be an improvement on the uh, layout. I might offer those, but try to keep it as much the artist's original vision as possible. And, you know, obviously uh, Mondo ultimately expanded in all sorts of other types of businesses from records to toys, games, um, went from being, a, well, a t-shirt company to a movie, largely a mover po- movie poster company, which is, I think, what a lot of people really think of. Um, I guess what motivated these different expansions as, as they happen? Growing up, growing a business, you have to, you know, you have to diversify once because we're all, the whole time we're just terrified, just like everyone uh, used to say in Espresso Beans. <laughs> When's it going to pop? When's it going to pop? So we we're like, we got to make sure. Was that so. present in your mind? Uh, of course. We also? were, Mitch and I were chicken little the entire time thinking <laughs> the sky was going to fall every year. And every year it didn't. Every year it got bigger every year. Even that year we got uh, fired. It was our best year. We had like, we'd sold more posters than we had ever sold before. It was crazy. But uh, for uh, records, it was also just, that was a bit of a chance. I was collecting, uh, I was a million to Bruce Lee since seventh grade. Not so much the uh, movies, just more the man. I don't know, he just seemed like a good role model for just trying to be perfect at something. And uh, I was going to start buying Bruce Lee soundtracks. And they were expensive, like <laughs> crazily expensive. I was blown away. I was not aware soundtracks were that much because usually when you see a soundtrack at at your uh, local record store, you know, the used section, it was Jaws or Poltergeist and they're like five bucks. They were like usually nothing. Which is funny because now those Jaws soundtracks that were five bucks are not. They're, the original issues are worth a lot. So uh, I saw that and I was like, shoot, we should uh, maybe uh, look into this. Um, this could be a really great uh, thing for us to get into. And it's something that obviously, you know, we kind of already have to know what to do. I'm already making record covers. Mitch actually used to run a uh, small label, uh, Sweat Lodge Guru. And he was immediately, he was about like my dad. He's like, yeah, watch out. This is some really thin profit margins. It's not a, <laughs> I don't know if you've looked around, but labels don't tend to last very long. They're, it's a hard thing to do. Like, and while we're doing all this other stuff, it wasn't like we had a huge, uh, we had a huge staff. But I uh, thought it would be worth, you know, try. So the first record was Maniac. We only did 500 because we didn't think we'd be able to sell 500 like in a month. And uh, we did that. We had some a variant inside that was couldn't purchase. You had to randomly get the variant, the pink. We wanted it to be a blood swirl variant, and it came out pink. And we're like, yeah, what are you going to do? So we put it in there. And then, uh, no joke, it sold out like within, I don't know, a couple of days. Wow. It was crazy. And, in fact, we were trying to save every uh, penny on that. Well, did not have a gatefold, didn't have an insert, 
even that nickel, we were just like, God, let's just try to keep this as efficient as possible. As soon as that sold out, the next one was beyond. And I told Mitch, I was like, look, I'm doing gatefold and I'm doing an insert. I'm making this nice. We can, we can bear it. We can make a thousand of these and sell out pretty easy. I guess in retrospect, do you feel that, do you still feel that it was the right move to expand in all these ways? Do you, would you have done anything differently, you know, considering, like, do you ever wish it had just stayed movie posters? Oh God, no. Uh, all the, whenever I met uh, Brock and Mikey and Hector, that's half the fun right there. The, the toy expansion, that was uh, more of a, that was Justin pushing that. That was not me. I, the weird thing is I collected toys like crazy, but it just, I felt like everything I wanted was either already made or I don't know. I I had not had yet to get into Sufubi in a hard way at that point. I really didn't know the, the possibilities really, I think. And uh, Justin, I think just wanted to do wrestling stuff like his, at the time, his goal was to make really nice six scale wrestling figures. Like, Real world. I mean, you, you didn't have them out there. They're always kind of like cheap or a little bit crappy, but you thought if you actually had like sideshow level, you know, junkyard dogs, people will go, oh my goodness. So uh, I'm glad that, I know I'm totally glad that happened. Glad uh, we made tiki mugs. I'm glad we made a bunch of weird t shirts. I'm glad we had Mondo Cons. I mean, everything, it, you're not aware of it when it's happening, but yeah, those were, those were really good years. Yeah. We complained in, uh, about, you know, the entire time, but. Looking back, yeah, it was, it was a great Thanksgiving. Let's put it that way. So, you know, obviously with the onset of COVID, a lot of the uh, live events, stuff that were part of your calendars, the Mondo Cons, all the festival or the, the conventions, um, gallery shows all had to shut down. Um, and I think ultimately forcing a lot of uh, layoffs just across the board for both Alamo and, and for Mondo. Um, and then I think it was the summer of last year that, that Funko ultimately acquired mondo from alamo i think that that's the right time frame um were you involved in like those conversations with tim and funko or were you part of that at all here's what happened I, it's just a story i've not shared i will share it <laughs> it was not going well here's the deal covid happened lockdown happened and alamo was just scrambling trying to figure what can we do and what can they do they were it was I mean, it's a theater company. It's a theater chain, and suddenly they're not allowed to do business. The only part of the business that was almost like allowed to make money was Mondo. So when everyone else is like pretending they're going to learn French or Japanese during lockdown, we're all just wearing our fingers down to bones trying to just you know save the patient, so to speak. But it didn't matter because it's a huge theater chain. No matter how many posters, records, even if they're all just the top top ones, my goodness, it's you can't make enough penicillin for a, for a body that big. Yeah. So it just basically wore us all down. I mean, until eventually we got to the point where we, it didn't matter. I didn't care anymore. None, none else did either. We were going to like just walk away. Uh, and that came to that point. They were, uh, they were trying to sell because the game got down initially. They tried to push the, hold the layoffs as far as possible, as long as possible. If you remember the Tim and Carrie emptied out the, like, emergency fund for employees like immediately it was like a million dollars or something or two i can't remember how much it was but basically just trying to as a bridge for everybody but at that point we didn't think it's going to be you know a year much less two years so eventually yeah they had to they had to start laying people off and what sucked was we still had the same amount of work (laughs) more so it just got harder and harder and harder 
And then uh, there was a point where uh, I'll give the exact ins and outs, but uh, we all quit. I actually got up uh, the. Are you familiar with the TV show Buck Rogers? I've heard of it, but never seen it. There was this robot on it called Tweaky, voiced by Mel Blank. And it was like the comedy relief of the show. It was just this dumb robot. And he had this professor robot on his chest. It's like a, almost like a big medallion. And that was like the AI brilliant, like, uh, advisor to like bug. And they had a question to the answer. This professor, whatever this guy would answer. Uh, we had a motocon. Uh, Chris Bellheimer uh, illustrated myself as Tweaky, and he illustrated Mitch as this uh, AI professor thing in, in the circle. The reason I'm saying this is, the day we went to quit, uh, it was me uh, and everyone there. It was me, Mo, Rank, and Eric, and we walked in. And Mitch wanted to be there too. He couldn't, so I had the I had the, my iPhone on, and I had Mitch called up, and I had him on. Uh, speakers so you could hear it and I was holding it up to my chest so it wasn't uh, uh, intrusive but I realized as I was saying my stuff oh my god it became tweaky <laughs> <laughs> got Mitch hanging here from my neck but then we came in we saw the the guy that was trying to that was in charge of uh, you know trying to sell Mondo to someone to all the interested parties and uh, we're like yeah we gotta go and he's like ooh okay uh, anything I do to change your mind about that we're like I don't think so. I think we're all, I think we're all kind of determined. Uh, it's, I think, you know, man, it's, it's been rough. He's like, I know, I know, but I think things are, are we're about to turn the corner. I'm like, yeah, uh, we're going to help you set, set you up for success, but I, I just don't think we can do this anymore. Uh, very, uh, it's been a pleasure working with you. We shook his hand and we all had Bon Mies at a local uh, sandwich shop. And here's what happened. Uh, they said, Hey, Tim Leak actually contacted us. And he's like, look, look, we're going to have a pitch from Funko. Brian Mariotti. We really want y'all to listen to this pitch. And if you don't like it, then fine, you know, you can stay quick. But uh, we just would really like you to hear this. And if it, you don't think we really think this is a good fit, uh, it's a way of keeping all of Mondo together at once. A lot of the people that were looking to buy Mondo wanted one part. Maybe, maybe they wanted the record part. Maybe they only wanted the toy part. Uh, or just become a weird poster joint. So Funko came in, Brian made a big pitch, and uh, we all kind of sequestered off. And I remember Spencer Hickman said it best. He's like, if only like 80% of that is true. Because uh, we, we know how it's, it's, it's corporate. There's going to obviously be some changes we're not going to be happy with, but it's, you got you know, to take the, good, the bad with the good. But we're, we're expecting something you know, not great to happen. But uh, it just seemed like there's so much opportunity there immediately mm. to to do stuff, just to do wild, crazy things. And we're like, you know what? Let's let's take a shot. We're already going to walk away. So this it could be a really fun, you know, two years, year and a half, at least. However, how much runway they give us? Well, they gave us seven months. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> but in all honesty, I don't think this is. I don't think Funko planned what they did. Mm. I obviously, if that was a plan, what a, a awful plan. I think what happened was they had a lot of big ideas. Things are going towards the moon. And I honestly believe they really did want to do all the things they, Brian wanted to do all the things he said he wanted to do. But unfortunately, the stock took a tumble. And uh, that led to a lot of folks having to make decisions. And honestly, when they, then when the layoffs happened, 
it was mostly Mondo folks, but if it's, if I was him, it has a choice between the people that have been with me forever and these, this joint I just bought seven months ago, I, I, can, I, I can get it. So was it as big of a surprise to you when it happened as it was the yes. community? Oh, God. I, I'd never been fired before. Right. I was, uh, Mitch and I, we got told we had these, uh, oh, Mitch and I, have we? I got a, uh, I got asked to have a meeting with uh, HR mm. in the morning. Uh-oh. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, that's not a good sign. <laughs> oh, I talked to him. I was like, what do you think? I mean, is this, is this me getting fired? He's like, I, I don't know. Maybe we were trying to think of anything else it could oh, possibly no. be besides that. And uh, nope, it was exactly what we thought it was going to be. Uh, so what they did when they fired us, they, uh, they fired uh, my boss first, uh, like the hour before me, and then mm. Jason, and then they fired me. My, uh, when they, I got in, I saw the, the two folks on the Zoom call, and I was like, uh, "Like, how you doing?" I'm like, "I got I'm a little bit nervous here. It's kind of a weird morning call." And they just their faces kind of dropped, like, "Oh, you know." And I was like, "Oh no!" I, once I saw their face drop, they realized I didn't know it was coming. I was like, "Oh, it's coming!" Shoot! And so they started a little uh, spiel of, you know, we really value what you know. I was like, "I, I I'm I just to cut this short. I know this is not happy, a great thing for y'all, and y'all apparently got a lot of this to do today." So let's, we can go right to the end if you like, if it makes it easier. I'm like, okay. Is there anything you want to say at this point? And I'm like, is someone recording it? Well, <laughs> no, I'm fine. It, it, you go ahead and go ahead and put the blindfold on and, you know, take your shot. It's all right. So uh, they did that. Then the, everyone out, Jason and I are the only people who got the privilege of being fired alone. Everyone else mm-hmm. got fired in pairs or in like, you know, four, which if two of the folks are, you know, taking it well, you know, like, oh, this is going to happen. One of those people's it's the worst day of their life then it sucks they have an audience of three of their friends having to watch it you know yeah but uh yeah it was rough but uh i i don't know i i immediately was like we were immediately like what are we going to do we're trying to figure out some sort of plan and jenny uh my wife uh put uh x dash mondo something on my instagram page on the identifier and i saw that and i was like what the hell are you doing so i said take it off she took that off but uh, i'd already gotten out by that point so that's when it all kind of exploded on uh, mondo trader people spreading the word and then it got picked up by variety and that's when it went kind of nuts variety ran this article and it went huge uh brian then wrote a response and i think if you've seen daniel danger's Brian Mariotti from Funko wrote a response to it, trying to say, hey, because you know, he's still trying to save the business. He might. I mean, I don't blame him. But he's like, hey, we still got a lot of big plans and a lot of things are going to happen. So, uh, you know, sit tight. And then Dale Danger just destroyed this response. Yeah. <laughs> it was brutal. It was a piece of, it was practically another, like a piece of art from him. I mean, seriously. It's like performance art from Daniel down to like accusing uh, Brian of liking the uh, unmasked kiss era <laughs> <laughs> which honestly by the way just uh, in support of unmasked kiss era it's good, it's good era still <laughs> yeah songs. i mean and i think he boothed right next to them too at san diego or he boothed some across convention. from them yeah because the problem yeah. was the year before he thought uh, he was going to be near the mondo booth mm. he got his booth and he's like finally it's great and then uh, we had moved all the way across the way to the Funkoville, and he's like, he's over there with you know backpacks and stuff. He's like, geez. So he finally gets his booth moved all the way to where he thinks is going to be the next uh. one to booth. <laughs> and life happens. So what are you going to do? 
But uh, yeah, he, it apparently went pretty well. He only had a few Funko folks come up going, hey, what's up? And he's like, yeah, I'm, they're my friends. I'm sorry. I'm kind of salty about it. They're like, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, though, knowing that now that you guys were going to quit like the year before. So this was almost like... We didn't want to quit. I mean, we wanted to keep Mondo alive. Mondo was, right. it was seriously, Mitch summed it up a while back. And it's kind of a warning to everyone, actually. If it's not, don't wrap your identity up mm. in a in a corporation or in a company. I mean, we just were, Mondo was just such a big part of, you know, our very fabric. Everything we, every time we went outside, we were thinking about how to improve Mondo, what to do for Mondo next. Yeah. And uh, it made it very hard to quit. Made it very hard to. I don't know. It's. I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying that we were treated terribly the entire time, but it wasn't like. I don't think maybe they knew what they had, so to speak. But part of that reason they were able to do that was because we were obviously going to be there till the end. Yeah, I mean, when you invest so much of yourself in a thing and then it lets you down, I guess you know, in a way. Oh, no, no. I don't think it let, it let us down. It just, no. things change. The circumstances? Yeah, things change. You know, sometimes, and also even down to all my coworkers, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you can't have the, the Beatles aren't going to stick around forever. If they do, it becomes the Ramones. And then what are you doing? <laughs> you listen to Acid Eaters and, you know, Adios Amigos, where the last record was. I mean, let's be honest. If you don't listen to those last three or four Ramones <laughs> right. records, maybe the CJ songs, you're like, yeah, CJ's not bad. But uh, you got to be careful. You got to change things up. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it worked out, I think. And speaking of, on to more exciting things. Not too long after the layoffs uh, were announced, you and Alan Hines joined uh, Vital Me Please. Uh, You know, you as executive creative director with Alan as senior creative director, which I I think is uh, amazing considering, um, you know, the work that you've done with Jack and Third Man Records over the years and obviously Mondo as a record label. Um, So how did this opportunity, you know, come about and how did you ultimately join Vital Me Please? They they wanted to, remember those remember I was saying earlier that some of those joints wanted to buy Mondo but only pieces of it. That was one of the joints. Uh, oh, okay. They were talking to uh, at the time uh, at the time uh, Jason, my boss, had left, and my new boss was Jeff Pinsker, and he was basically there to you know get this place sold. And uh, he uh, say after it all everything went uh, down with uh, Funko uh, and us. Uh, he called up and he's like, or he wrote email, sorry. And he's like, uh, hey, uh, sorry, I did not think this is what they were going to do, <laughs> obviously. I know I, I really feel terrible. And I was like, don't, dude, honestly, don't feel bad. I gave him the same thing as to you. I don't think this is their intention. I, I don't I don't think they were lying to you. I think everything, just bad circumstances. So please don't feel bad at all. You know, you did the, you did you, exactly what you're supposed to have done. Got the best price for Alamo and got us in a place where we could all still work together. He's like, well, cool. Well, listen, there was a place called uh, VMP that uh, was very interested in the record aspect. And uh, I don't know, uh, the, the CEO there, Cam Schaefer, is a really great guy. I think I think y'all would click. I think this would be a really great uh, uh, potential uh, place for uh, for somebody all to go to. So I was like, well, great. Give us give them, give them our emails. And uh, me, Eric, and Mitch actually started talking to them. And then it was such a great result that we ask the other folks to come and listen to what they had to say too. Uh, in the end, uh, they wanted to hold out and I'm 50. They're not. So I'm like, I need, I, I want to 
have a place that's kind of established. I want to, I want to be in a car that's already built. And those guys like, we want to build a car. I'm like, Oof. I don't know if you remember what it was like building that other car, man, but that was <laughs> a lot of grease. It seems like these guys got a really amazing car and they're like, yeah. it's like a van. I mean, it's, it's cool. So they, uh, they're going to hopefully, uh, build their car. And then uh, I was like, well, I called up, uh, Alan said, did you want to be a, uh, you want to come over here and be in this car? And he's like, yeah, sounds awesome. Oh, wouldn't interesting thing about Alan too. Alan got fired uh, too, but uh, they didn't fire the record people. Oh, they yeah. wanted they wanted to keep all the record the record folks, but they thought Alan was a poster guy for some reason. <laughs> so it was a bit like that. I, I, I've Did they not this even know that. what their own employee was doing? I mean, is that- he tried to tell them during the during the firing. He's like, "Oh, well, wait, I think there's a mistake here." It was like that the bit in Brazil when the they. The fly gets caught in the typewriter and there's like a bottle gets taken. So he's like, this is not my name. It's just right here. Like, sorry, right. the paperwork. It's it says your posters. So bye. And then uh, later on, they realized, oh, shoot, uh, all the stuff Alan was working on. No one can finish because it's Alan Hines level, you know, origami intricate kaleidoscope work. So they had to actually pay Alan a pretty princely sum to wow. finish off his last two projects. That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, is your role going to be uh, similar to what it was as creative director at Mondo? Or is it going to be closer to what you have done with your projects at Third Man or some like combination of those? Uh, here's what it is. I uh, ends up, I am actually, despite my best efforts, uh, I'm building a car. <laughs> <laughs> and man, I got to tell you, it is a lot of, a lot of emails. Uh, mm. Not so much art, more, more emails. And just reaching out and trying to get things to happen. There's a lot of just small things. Normally, I'd, I'd have had a staff at Mondo handling that. It's now me or Jen. Uh, they also hired Jenny as my uh, production nice. manager. And she's finding out that she's a production manager and a licensing manager. <laughs> so trying to get that jo- that role filled out too. But uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of uh, it's a lot of stuff, a lot of discovery, a lot of a uh, lot of a lot of grease. But uh, we're hoping that uh, it's going to be. Humming pretty well, maybe within another uh, five, six months. I think things are going to blow up when they see the Tyler's Goonies package. I'm not kidding. It's really nice. Nice. So the the car that you're building now, is that the new uh, soundtrack subscription line? I think that's what part of what was announced when you joined, right? It'll be soundtracks, but there's also slip mats, apparel, um, posters, tiki mugs, i.e. stuff from Honda. So yeah, basically VMP, but through, uh, maybe through a... Mondo through a VMP lens it also okay. allows me to elevate things a bit more too. Alan's got some some big ideas that hopefully we'll be able to do too. But uh, it's here's the other thing though: it's not like a broken place hired us. You know, they're already zooming; they're already on their way to now, and people consider them an audiophile label. Every one of the reasons I love I the quality of their stuff. I mean, incredible. Right? I, I um I have what's Elton John's Madman Across the Water. I have a handful of stuff from them, and the build quality and like pressing quality, it's incredible. It's the pressing quality that blows my, me away. And this is before the plant's operational. I've been shared some stuff, some proprietary stuff they're going to do for this plant. It's going to sound even better. That's what's crazy. But the thing that really got me into VMP was every review I saw of you know, unboxings or people comparing. It was a lot of jazz heads going, I've got the original pressing and I've got this pressing of whatever, Thelonious Monk, Sazor Gazbo or whatever, some weird Polish jazz guitarist. Every every person coming up there was saying, I've got both and the VMP pressing sounds better. 
the pressing sounds more open. Even for rock stuff like Thin Lizzy, I kept seeing so many people going this. That's why I keep talking about the Thin Lizzy record that we put out before I got there. It's it's an amazing sounding record and it's also an amazing looking record. Um, our our uh, main uh, art director Clay Condor, he uh, Condor, sorry, he uh, worked directly with Jim Fitzpatrick. Um, nice. And our, uh, the Irish artist, he did all the uh, Thin Lizzy uh, work in the past, and he's like, the record company didn't let us do this thing back in the day. So if we could do it now, that'd be great. So we were able to actually make it even, uh, even the packaging itself became a better thing than it was. And again, this is before I, I'm, I'm, I'm blending. So they're already humming pretty well. So their hope was that we're just going to add another section to this, a nice trailer to their already beautiful <laughs> car. Yeah, that's amazing. So like any upcoming, pro- I mean, you mentioned the Goonies project with Tyler, any other upcoming projects that you're excited for that you can yeah, talk I, about? I can't, I can't talk about okay. them. Uh, well, when is this going to be aired? Uh, the end of, well, around Thanksgiving time. So, oh, good. Uh, I can talk about this then. Uh, we're releasing Barbie tomorrow. Okay, nice. Or we're on November 1st. As Alan Hines designed this, it is spectacular. Very cool. It's, he wanted to make it feel like something escaped from Barbie land, the actual rain, like through the rift or wherever the hell is in the movie that they just keep nebulously, uh, vague. And as, I mean, he, I guess I can't give it away since it'll be revealed by that point. Uh, it's it's his handbag, and it's as if Barbie went record shopping. She got her <laughs> record version. It even has a receipt from the Barbie Boombox record store. It's got all this crazy stuff on the back of the receipt for like Barbie Land related uh, services. He's got a driver's license, but it's a wow. goofy oversized driver's license. That's a picture disc. And this is actually a really cool part. He made it so it looked like Ken slipped an autographed picture of himself. <laughs> and the picture of Ken. It's Ryan Gosling, but it's um, it's uh, a flexi disc. And the idea was that we'd only have Ken stuff appear on inferior recording material. So we have a flexi disc <laughs> and a picture disc featuring Ken stuff. Amazing! That's incredible. Oh, really so cool. I mean, if that's the quality that that's going to be coming, I'm excited uh, to see what else you guys do. That's amazing. Let's, let's be honest. There's only like uh, we can only do <laughs> at most maybe ten or eleven of those a year because it's only sure, so much. Sure. Uh, we're trying to, I'm trying to make it so uh, Alan can work on stuff easier. Like the finishing bits at the end that he would get caught up on, like, hey, we got to change out legal five times. We're trying to make sure he's not the person doing that anymore. So it's basically him just being able to bring the idea to as close as he feels he can hand it off and then have someone just finish it off for him. Awesome. Um, anything else that you have coming up that you'd want to put on people's radars? Events? Releases? Mm. Nothing I can think of. Please. Barbie album is going to be great. Oh, I guess I can talk about this. We'll also have a Barbie, uh, well, we should have a Barbie poster as well by uh, Shar Muragaya. Oh, nice. Very cool. I'm uh, eager to see what his take is. He always has a very unique uh, perspective. <laughs> he, did, he did something really cool. He basically sh- tells you the movie, but you don't know if you haven't seen the movie. So and then after you see the movie and you look at the poster again, you're like, oh my God, there's, oh, there's wow. a lot of subtle heartbreak in this. It's sweet at the same time. I don't know. I can't, I can't really, again, I'll be dancing about architecture trying to describe it uh, verbally, but it's, it's really, it's really poignant. I don't know. Uh, we have some other posters too, but there is a uh, charms didn't require likeness. So that's why it's able to go quicker. Anything else we've got to put in some work. So we'll see. That's all work you're familiar with. Uh, done for years. Nope. So. Uh, not, I, well, 
a little bit, but the thing is when you, when it's, when it's Barbie, I'm a bit worried cause it's bigger folks, but actually Jenny's been doing uh, really well, uh, getting a lot of, uh, likeness clearance for other projects. So hopefully things nice. will go the same way. Oh, that's another thing I guess I can talk about. We're going to, yeah, I'll tease it. Why not? Uh, we are going to do something with Greg Ruth and a David Lynch property. Oh, wow. That is not Twin Peaks. I'll just say that. I, I feel like he's a really, that's a very good pairing. Like I, I, I can immediately imagine him doing something well for David Lynch. <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know why that is. But As the only artist that we were told that David Lynch would approve. Yes. <laughs> he's got a real, he's got a real good thing. He's got a real good pairing with David Lynch. It's, in fact, it's weird. Back in Mondo days, uh, we tried to submit that uh, Greg Ruth gallery show. Mm. And... Um, uh, whoever uh, David Lynch's uh, you know, gatekeeper was is like, yeah, uh, look, David's just not want, doesn't want to prove any new art or illustrations of uh, this stuff. So uh, we're just not going to you know, even uh, show this to him. So just don't, we'll just give your money back. If this is what you want to do. We're fine. This is not going to happen. So forget about it. And we're like, geez, at least show it. I mean, at least show Jack White the, blue post with a red in it he might say yeah obviously most time 99 times he's gonna say no but you never know well they know they're like to we've been told to keep stuff off we're trying to keep his inbox free so things that 99 times we've been told no one was going to nine bother with that hundredth time so you know go go get stuffed and then a few months later it was weird the guy wrote uh to tim weish our licensing manager uh, at mod at the time and said uh Hey, uh, uh, Mr. Lynch is really into this artist, Greg Ruth. We don't know if you've heard of him or not, but if you have an idea maybe that involves his artwork, then we're all for it. And Tim just bit his tongue in half and went, yes, I'll have a uh, proposal for you immediately if you like. Yeah, right. <laughs> or uh, I think he pretended and waited a day. <laughs> he re sent the exact same proposal in and then it was all approved. That's amazing. Um so uh, where can people find you online so they can keep up to date with all these things? Uh, Rob Jones. Uh, it's animalrami.com or uh, mo more likely uh, vmp.com. Is there a story behind the Animal Rummy name that you want to share? I had a squad of folks I used to drink with when I first moved to Austin. Uh, some old uh, high school friends and then folks that they knew and we knew in, uh, in town. And... Uh, we called ourselves Animal Rummy because one day uh, my buddy Joey and I went to this Eckerd's. We saw these like kids games for sale and one was a deck of cards called Animal Oot. Apparently it's an ancient uh, card game, but we had never heard that name before. And in our hungover heads were like, we thought it was the funniest sounding thing we'd ever heard. Like Animal Rummy. And plus we thought it kind of described us because we were like, you know, bestial drunks. <laughs> so next time we had a big uh, we had a big meeting at uh kind of at the ritz actually <laughs> the old, old point was it used to be a bar uh we uh, gave each other uh animal rummy uh nicknames and uh formed a charter <laughs> that's amazing so last question and this is something that i'd like to ask everybody uh sure. who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show frank cozy oh <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Somebody that would be, I, I want to think of someone you're probably not going to, you wouldn't normally get to. You know what I'm saying? You know what? Actually, in light of Frank passing, because I think it would be an interesting interview, considering their history, uh, Coop. I've heard the Mark Maron interview, 
And you remember, they even Mark opens it up with, I took all the cozy posters down, don't worry. <laughs> and because uh, Coop's a nice dude. I, I, I met him once at the at a Monocon uh, for a second. But uh, it'd be interesting to hear his thought, just to hear more of his, uh, if maybe it'd be less guarded about uh, his history and Frank's past. And maybe he'd you know, actually have some warm thoughts, which always happen when uh, you know, a funeral goes through. But uh, that would be, that'd be the guy I'd say, Coop. Awesome. Great suggestion. Rob, thanks so much, man, for doing this. I'm, it's really been good catching up with you. And, you know, once you get back, we're going to have to hang out sometime. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry if I mumbled too much. So that's it for this episode of Artifairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rob. It was interesting to hear Rob reflecting on his grief series and how his goals with that kind of story have evolved since he originally made them. He said if he made them today, or if he made more of them, that he'd focus more on the things that he's thankful for, rather than the negative stories from his life. Good grief. Such a great name. (laughs) I really hope he finds the time to pursue that. The whole series is incredibly thoughtful with an enormous amount of depth. And I guess that's really something that has always impressed me about what Rob creates, regardless of whether it's personal work or client work. There's always so much depth. Even though he works quickly on his poster assignments, like he talked about, he never shortcuts the concept. There's always so much thought put into every part of what he does. We didn't really have a chance to dig into his creative process like I'd wanted to, but I am genuinely curious how he arrives at his ideas for works. He not only puts a lot of himself into the work, but also a ton about the band and the city that the show's in. Connecting all of those different things in a cohesive way is is really impressive. So I'd love to know more about how he kind of works through that. It was also interesting to hear his side of Mondo's rise and, you know, recent fall. As someone who also has gone through being laid off before, I can definitely relate with what he and the other folks at Mondo went through. Uh, And I didn't even realize that leading up to Funko acquiring them, that everyone was so run down from having to keep afloat in, you know, a post-COVID world to the point where they were about to just walk out and leave it all behind. Uh, Funko sort of delayed that demise, but you know, ultimately let them, let them all go, you know, a half a year later, definitely a closing of a chapter, uh, in his life. And it, it was, um, I think really poignant the way he said, you know, you don't realize as you're living through these times, how genuinely good they are, you know, until you're on the other side of it. Um, and that really, uh, struck me pretty deeply. But with the closing of a chapter, obviously there's a chance for a new one to open. So it's really cool to see that a new one has already started for him with him joining VMP Records. I've been so impressed by the quality of their releases. Admittedly, I only have a few, but the ones that I have picked up all have such top-notch production from the pressing to the packaging. So I'm really excited to see what Rob and Alan are able to do with such high-quality releases. That Barbie release sounds incredible. So much detail, so much thought. Uh, I'm really impressed by everything that he described. Uh, So check out his and Vinyl Me Please's social media to keep up with all these new projects. So thanks again to Rob for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. 
I'm truly grateful for your support. I could not have done this for the last four years without all of you. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. And shout out to the patrons for supporting me for as long as they have. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. As always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. And the Grammy goes to Rob Jones and Jack White III for Under Great White Northern Lights. That's awesome. Uh, it's honor being out there with Juan Oliver. Wow. Uh, I'd like to thank White Stripes and everyone else who helped me out. Mom, Dad, Captain Spillin, and God. There you go. <laughs>